0: Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com. Dot com forward slash podcast and enter the code BioReport. That's Deep Dive D E E P D Y V E dot com forward slash podcast and the code is BioReport one word all caps. I'm Daniel Levine and this is the Bio Report. While great progress has been made in understanding the human genome, its functional counterpart, the human proteome, remains relatively unexplored. In part, that's because advances in the tools to identify the far bigger universe of protein variants has been lacking. Seer Bio has developed a platform for large-scale proteomic studies that it says is both unbiased and scalable. We spoke to Omid varoxid. Chair and CEO of Sear Bio, about the state of proteomics, how Sear's technology works, and why it can help advance our understanding of health and disease. Omid, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to talk about Sear, the challenge of proteomics today, and how Sear's technology is being used to understand the proteome. Uh, before we talk about Sears technology, though, I thought we could take a step back and talk about where we are in understanding proteomics today. As you think about the work on the Human Genome Project and the progress we've made there today, where are we in terms of understanding the human proteome?
1: Then if you look at the, uh, the genome, it took us 15 years and just shy of 3 billion to sequence the first genome. And then with the advent of next generation sequencing, um, cost dropped, you know, cost dropped to 200,000 and now we're at 1,000 with visibility to $100 genome there. And frankly, $10 genome may also not be too distant in the future. The consequence of all of that is that we've sequenced over a million genome, over 10 million exomes and in aggregate at the population level we've now identified over 695 million genetic variants. And the thing is that, while we've identified these variants at the genomic level, we know a tiny bit about what these variants mean in terms of their biological function. Um, and, and how does that genotypic changes actually affect function at the population level within the proteins? And remember, uh, our genes are largely static. Um, and they're an excellent indicator of our risk, but proteins are dynamic and a true indicator of our status. And we just have very, very little information at the protein level. And frankly, the reason for it is that our proteins are complex, and I'm sure we're gonna get into it, and we just haven't had the tools to get into the depth, the breadth of the complexity of the proteome, and that lack of information hasn't really enabled us to connect the genotype to phenotype.
0: Well, what's the reason for that? Why have we had such a challenge connecting genotype to phenotype and understanding the function?
1: Well, look, um, that's because in the simplest term, biology is complex. I mean, we're all born with about 20,000 genes. All the cells in our bodies, every cell has the same genes. Um, But uh, as you go from uh, genes to RNA and then from RNA to proteins, Every step adds complexity. So, for example, you go from about 20,000 genes, but because those genes can um, produce many different RNA transcripts, um, our transcriptome could be as large as 200,000. And then by the time you go from these transcripts, and some of them actually won't code for protein, but many do, uh, you end up with a lot of proteins and then proteins themselves get modified after synthesis, you know, post-translational modification, if you would. And the complexity of the proteome could be million-plus different proteoform or protein variants that are coded by the same 20,000 genes. So as you, as you go from the 20,000 genes um, toward the protein, uh, you end up with a million different variants of protein. Um, and by the way, that estimate varies depending on um, whose papers you're reading, but certainly complexity that is much, much larger than at the genomic level. Now, these protein variants, um, you know, proteins come together and form complexes, and these complex of proteins exert a biological function, and different variants of proteins can actually come together in a distinct and unique way during health and disease. And so the, the, if you imagine the complexity that we're talking about, the tools that we've had at our at our disposal to look at the, the, the proteome just haven't allowed us to get to this depth and breadth of the complexity of the proteome to date.
0: So we've seen these remarkable advances in the genomic tools. We, we, we've shattered Moore's law with those. Where are we in our advancing of tools to understand the proteome? How well suited are they to the task at hand
1: look i mean the approaches folks have taken uh to the study of proteins uh, at, at, at the broadest level i would say fall into two buckets um you can approach proteins in a targeted way uh or in a quote biased way or you can approach proteins in an untargeted or unbiased way so A targeted means that I know what I'm looking for, and I'm going to create an analyte-specific reagent, or an ASR, um, and to go and interrogate that protein. Now, any ligand can be an ASR, so a, a classic one would be an antibody, but virtually any ligand class, so nucleic acid ligands like aptamers or many different protein scaffold ligands like nanobodies, affibodies, adnectins, demantis, those are all different classes of ligands. You can select a ligand for a protein of interest, and then you can go and repeatedly interrogate it. So that's a, a biased approach to proteomic. Now, if you look at it from an antibody perspective, these biased approaches can be, again, divided into two buckets. They can be a monoclonal approach, or they can be a polyclonal approach. In a monoclonal approach, I have an ASR that always binds to a very specific part of a protein, um, and I can go and interrogate that. And by virtue of the fact that that ASR is binding to a very specific part of a protein, uh, it could actually have utility in clinical application. And in fact, many of these monoclonal targeted approaches are perfectly suitable Uh, for a single protein or low plex protein clinical utility. And in fact, uh, many of the proteomic uh, diagnostics today will take an approach like that. You can also uh, have an ASR approach, which is a polyclonal, if you would, approach, where you would have many different ligands um, against that protein. now, the challenge with the monoclonal approaches are they're excellent because you can actually identify a specific protein variant, um, but they're very difficult to make. So a typical monoclonal antibody would take months to make. Now, a polyclonal approaches uh, to, uh, to a targeted proteomic approach are much more scalable. Um, you can actually develop a polyclonal ligand to a protein very quickly. You can even do it in, um, in parallel and, and, do, and do multiple at once. But um, the challenge is that you are not able to distinguish different variants of a protein when you approach it in a polyclonal way, number one. And number two, um, they don't have applications, at least that I'm aware of, uh, in terms of clinical utility. The targeted proteomic approaches that are used in clinical applications are monoclonal applications. Um, where repeatedly you can have the same exact protein from the same hybridoma, if you would, uh, making the same antibody, and then you can go interrogate it. With polyclonal approaches, every time you kind of make it, there is batch-to-batch variability because those polyclonal um, products that you produce will be different from each other, and, and they don't have utility in clinical application. So, those are targeted approaches. Now, a, a polyclonal targeted approach can actually have utility, for example, in, in translational research, but it, but it's um, but at least to date it has not had uh, traction in clinical application. Or you can approach proteomics in an unbiased way or a non-targeted way. And in that context, you're saying that I don't know what is important. I want to look at, as much as I can find the totality of the information, if you would. Um, And in fact, that is how new biological insight is gained. Now, the non-targeted approaches or the unbiased approaches to proteomics um, have been around um, for a long time. Typically involve a a liquid chromatography and a mass spec. And the challenge that they've had is that they just don't scale. Um, so, you could look at the totality of the information if you would, but because you can't do it at scale, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to gain the types of biological insight that we were able to gain when we looked at genomics at scale. Now, remember, before we got unbiased genomic at scale, and by that I mean next-generation sequencing, I can do large number of samples, I can do them at the cost. Um, and, and in a time frame that makes it possible to do large-scale population-level studies. Um, before we had that, we still had targeted genomic approaches. That's basically the PCR. You could PCR amplify a fragment, and then you could have used, you know, the Sanger dideoxy method of sequencing it. Um, by the way, I've done my fair share of pouring the uh, those gels and running those sequencing gels myself early in my career. Now. The the challenge was that that was difficult to do and it didn't scale. When um, unbiased genomic approaches came, the utility of targeted genomic approaches did not go away. In fact, as we were able to gain new biological insight by the magnitude of the information that was becoming available to us, the utility and the application for targeted genomic approaches like a PCR actually increased because we now had more interesting things to go and interrogate um, in a rapid way using targeted approaches. So when I look at proteomics, the where the real biological insight, where that massive part of the unmet need, the total addressable market, if you would, in the proteomic exists, is getting all of that content, cataloging all of that content, which is actually going to create end markets that probably don't even exist today. But as you do that, there will be other applications and a subset of those will be used in a targeted way. And in fact, I think the utility for targeted proteomic approaches will actually increase um, you know, as unbiased proteomic approaches allow us to get deeper and deeper uh, into the proteome and 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 get to deciphering, if you would, the complexity of the proteome, which to date has remained largely untouched.
0: I want to take a a slightly deeper dive into that terminology of a biased approach. The, The traditional way that researchers have studied the proteome is through the use of analyte-specific reagents or ASRs. And this is called a a biased approach because it's targeted. Is the suggestion that they could only find what they were looking for?
1: That is exactly right. Look, um, if I take an antibody, and and you have to imagine with me, um, uh, uh, you know, an average human protein is 472 amino acids long an average ASR binds to an epitope that is only five to eight amino acid long. So if I make a monoclonal antibody against a given protein, that means that for that, on the average 472 amino acid long protein, I am binding to a tiny portion of that protein, which is the five to eight amino acid that is my binding site. Now, that protein could change anywhere else other than the binding sites, during health and disease. It could be post-translationally modified. There could be genetic variants that changes amino acids anywhere else in that protein. I would never be able to see that in terms of the variance of that protein that exists using that, using that approach. Now, monoclonal approaches can be excellent if you know exactly what you're looking for. So for example, let's say I have a kinase Um, and this particular kinase gets phosphorylated at a particular serine residue in that protein. I can develop a monoclonal antibody that will bind to the phosphorylated version of that protein at that serine residue, but not to the non-phosphorylated form of the protein at that same residue, right? So I can have the monoclonal antibody. So monoclonal antibodies are excellent if you know what you're looking for. Now, polyclonal approaches, unlike monoclonal approaches, Actually, are incapable, fundamentally not possible, to look at variants of the protein. Why? Because as you generate those reagents, you're making many different ligands against that 472 amino acid long protein, and any one of the various different polyclonal antibodies can bind to that protein. So as you, as that protein creates variants of it, whether those variants are at at the level of amino acid changes or whether those variants are at the post translational modification changes, perhaps one of those antibodies may not bind, but other in that pool of polyclonal does bind, and so the net is a binding, a positive binding, incapable of differentiating the different variants of the proteins together. So, the limitation of targeted approaches are the following. One... In the case of monoclonal, they don't scale because it's very difficult and time-consuming to develop monoclonal for each of the variants that exist in the proteome. When you look at it from a polyclonal approach, which does scale, you are limited in the fact that you cannot identify variants of a protein. So in essence, if the genome was such that one gene codes for only one protein, and therefore, the totality of our twenty thousand genome um, would encode twenty thousand protein. Then a polyclonal approach would have been excellent because a it is scalable, relatively speaking, to the monoclonal approaches, and b I could pick that up. But the fact that we go from twenty thousand genes to million plus protein, the inability to identify variants of those proteins is a significant handicap when it comes to discovery. And gaining new biological insight.
0: There have been so-called unbiased tools researchers can use, but you say these are limited because they're not scalable. Can you explain?
1: Yes, of course. If you look at the uh, existing unbiased approaches to proteomic, typically these involve um, a liquid chromatography and mass spec. And the reason um, for those tools being used is that not only is the proteome complex in terms of the structure of the proteins, the proteome is also complex in terms of the quantities, if you would, of various different proteins in a biological sample or a biological matrix. So, for example, if you take the plasma, within the human plasma, from the most abundant protein to the least abundant protein, there is over 10 order of magnitude in concentration difference. So, albumin is the most abundant protein in plasma, albumin alone represents by mass 50% of the total protein in plasma. Now, the next 20 or so abundant proteins after albumin in plasma, together with albumin, represent by mass over 99% of the total protein in plasma. And what that means is the balance of the plasma proteins, which is thousands of proteins, is that 1% of protein by mass. And so what scientists and researchers have done in order in an unbiased and untargeted way to interrogate the proteins, what they do is they create these separation techniques, like for example, immunodepletion of the abundant proteins, fractionations of many of the subsequent proteins in the sample. And then each of those, if you would fractions that gets created is then put into a mass spec for analysis. And the problem is that the amount of time it takes to do these workflows, it limits the size of the study a researcher can run. And so invariably, the researcher has to, without an exception, make a choice of how deep do they want to go into the proteome and then, you know, versus the size of the study they can do. And that compromise is unfortunate because if you want to gain insight in biology, you have to go deep and you have to do it on a large number of samples. The reason we've identified over 695 million genetic variants is because we have now sequenced over a million genomes. We have sequenced over 10 million exomes. The very first one that we did informed us very little. It's all the subsequent ones that added to the enormous amount of information that got gained. So we have to be able to do unbiased proteomics really at the same scale and speed as we can do genomic studies in an unbiased way. By the way, when you do that, something awesome happens. And that is that you now impedance match the generation of unbiased genomic with unbiased proteomic, and when you do that, you really enable the field of proteogenomics, which really enables you to go from genotype to phenotype to really make sense of the biological content that are being generated, both in terms of genomic site and proteomic site, really in a, uh, if you would, a self-fulfilling cycle where proteomic information adds value to genomic content, and then more genomic information drives more demand for proteomic information. And so to really get there, you got to impedance match our ability to access the genome in an unbiased way at scale with the proteome in an unbiased way at scale. And I think we are basically at that watershed moment in time where that is now becoming possible, exactly as it became possible 15 years ago in the genomic world.
0: Sir is using nanoparticles with a magnetic core. What is a nanoparticle?
1: Nanoparticle uh, are basically spheres, if you would, very very small spheres, small enough that you could put about eighty thousand of them side by side in the cross section of your hair. By the way, I spent twenty years of my life playing with these nanoparticles for a range of applications in medicine, um, developing uh, targeted uh drug delivery system, developing vaccine, and then in the context of SEER uh, for protein sampling. What is interesting in, in the way these nanoparticles behave is that frankly, they kind of follow nature. Uh, by the way, many of the awesome innovations that happen uh, in, in science and medicine is us in some way, shape or form mimicking what nature has taught us. Um, If you look at the way proteins interact with themselves, remember, early on, I said that proteins function by coming together and forming complexes, and as a complex, that machinery is able to function and drive a particular application that that collection of proteins were designed to do. Now, how do the proteins come together? Well, they come together because the physical chemical properties of one protein matches the other protein and by that I mean like the carbon nitrogen oxygen molecule of one is oriented in a way that it kind of fits into the other one so that physical chemical relationship brings them together but also in nature two other factors plays part one is that temporarily those two proteins are expressed at the same time and then spatially they're also expressed near each other. So it could be in the same cellular compartment, it could be in the same tissue, same organ, but the proximity of those proteins together being expressed at the same time and physical chemically fitting each other makes them come together. Now, that happens in evolution over millions of years. You can actually accelerate that process with data science and machine learning in a lab where you can design nanoparticles with specific physical chemical surfaces that are distinct from each other. So a nanoparticle, depending on its physical chemical structure, will sample proteins in a complex matrix of proteins in a very unique way that is a signature of that nanoparticle. And, And so what that means is if I take, for example, a biological sample, and let's say I take your blood um, and I expose your blood to, uh, to a particular nanoparticle that's got a very defined physical chemical properties, I will sample a set of proteins in an unbiased way. I will do that robustly and reproducibly, different operators, different hands, different instruments, different labs, I'll get a very similar type of sampling. So basically, Daniel, mimicking what nature has done in terms of the way proteins interact with each other, you can basically recapitulate that exact thing um, in a laboratory by the way you engineer these nanoparticles. So Daniel, if you think of the way uh, proteins bind to each other, they bind to each other because the physical chemical properties of one protein matches the physical chemical properties of another protein, meaning the... The way the carbon-hydrogen-oxygen atom of one protein is lined up is lined up such that it actually matches the atoms of the other one in a way that it kind of fits into a pocket with each other. Now, in the case of proteins binding with each other, two other elements are at play. One is that they're expressed at the same time, so there's a temporal component in the way those proteins see each other. There's also spatial expression in that those proteins are expressed, not only at the same time, but in the same tissue or in the same cell or cellular compartment. Now that's basically biology and evolution to bring those proteins to come together and exert a biological function. You can learn a lot from biology and you can essentially mimic those same kinds of bindings, if you would, in a lab using nanoparticle technologies. So you can design these nanoparticles with distinct physical chemical properties. If you imagine the universe or the canvas of physical chemical design is almost infinite in terms of what we can do and we can design these nanoparticles with unique physical chemical structures and then explore what is it that that nanoparticle binds to and picks up in a highly robust and reproducible way. Now that binding is actually quite robust. So if I take the same nanoparticle and the same biological sample, let's say your your plasma, for example, and I do the assay in different days by different operators in different hands using different instruments, I will end up with a very similar pattern of protein sampling. So now I take your blood again, your plasma, and I now change the physical chemical properties of the nanoparticle. I basically design a different nanoparticle and I come back and I sample your protein again. And now I have a different pattern of protein sampling than the first nanoparticles. As you can imagine, I'm not doing any depletion and fractionation. Um, this is basically a binding assay that's happening. And by just adding different nanoparticles, you know I can basically sample the proteome across its entire dynamic range um, in a highly robust and reproducible way. Now, the way the nanoparticles bind proteins is actually quite interesting in that sampling isn't as a function of um, what is the most abundant protein. If it was, then the nanoparticles would largely sample albumin and other abundant proteins. But the binding to the surface of the nanoparticle is driven by not only the abundance of that protein, but also the affinity of those proteins for the surface of the nanoparticles such that maybe a low-abundant protein that has a higher affinity for that nanoparticle surface, it would actually occupy space displacing the higher-abundant protein with a lower affinity, uh, and then that nanoparticle samples it. So if you look at the sampling that our nanoparticle does in a biological sample, we can essentially sample across the entire dynamic range of the proteome, seeing everything, of course, from the most abundant protein like albumin, but seeing very low abundant proteins, you know, like cytokines. And again, that sampling is robust, reproducible. If you look at the coefficient of variance of these assay quite tight. Um, um, And let me know if that answers the question, Daniel, and I'm happy to expand as, as helpful.
0: How good are these at finding proteins that may be in low concentrations?
1: Well, look, you, you just, you know, as a scientist, you just have to follow the data, right? So, so if, I look at, um, if I look at the way a panel of our nanoparticles um, sample the protein, and I compare that with existing approaches, depletion fractionation approaches, uh, to go into deep unbiased proteomic, we can go deeper into the proteome, and we can do that um, with a better uh, reproducibility in terms of our assay and CV. So we can get low abundant proteins, Daniel, um, uh, you know, going down to the proteome, um, you know, proteins like cytokines uh, as well as sampling other proteins that are, that are relatively more abundant.
0: This is part of a, a suite of products. How do you move from sample to result with your platform? So if
1: you look at what the, uh, what the product suite of, of, of SEER is, it's the proteograph product suite. It comprises our consumables. That includes our proprietary nanoparticles, but there's other reagents in that kit. And then there is an automation instrument. This is a fluid handling instrument. It's an OEM instrument um, uh, designed for us. It only runs our assay. Um, uh, and, and then there is a software suite that helps the um the scientists go from biological data if you would to biological insight now there is a missing link here which is the detector our detector of choice is a mass spec we are actually detector agnostic and by that i mean the proteograph instrument sits upstream to a mass spec and it works with any different types of mass spec in fact in our own labs at seer we have you know, thermal mass specs, Bruker mass specs, um, Psy-X mass specs, and no reason that other mass specs won't work. Um, and, um, and in fact, the proteograft product, so it is actually mass spec, not only mass spec agnostic, but it's detector agnostic in totality. And by that, I mean, if there is another detector um, some point in the future that could be developed that can look at the proteins in an unbiased way then the, the workflow of the proteograph, the terminal workflow of the proteograph could be tweaked uh, to then um, work with that uh, detector. So what happens is you have the proteograph, uh, the consumable is basically a razor, razor blade model, and a, a customer buys the uh, the instrument and then they use the reagents. Um, the, um, the instrument is a seven hour, um, workflow of which there's 30 minutes of hands-on time uh, for the operator to load the machine. That is six and a half hours of fully automated time um, where the machine runs the assay. You, you process 16 samples in parallel. And then those samples come out of the proteograph, and they go into a detector. Again, I said we're detector agnostic, but currently the detector of choice is mass spec. The reason for it is that there is 15,000 mass spec installed globally that does you know, proteomic studies and proteomic work. And so there's a large number of install base that, that the prototype can sit upstream to. Um, and then as, as the information comes off the mass stack, it goes into our own data suite uh, for analysis um, uh, that the customer can use uh, in, in understanding basically the content that they're getting out of the detector.
0: And how scalable is this approach? What, what can researchers do with Sears technology that they can't do with other approaches.
1: You know, I said early on that essentially what SEER has made possible is to impedance match um, or access uh, to unbiased genomic content uh, and unbiased proteomic content. So you can actually so one proteograph and two mass specs um, can roughly. Um, Match the throughput of one NovaSeq instrument uh, in about, basically, in the same time frame. So, in about, in about a two-day time frame, one proteograph and two mass specs can you know, process about forty-eight or so samples, and the same throughput is a NovaSeq instrument that would do about forty-eight samples in terms of uh, genomic content. So, the scalability of it now matches. Uh, basically the scalability that we have in accessing genomic content. Now, this is not an incremental improvement. So prior to SEER, um, the largest plasma deep proteomic studies, and deep is defined as a study that detected at least 600 proteins, the largest plasma deep unbiased proteomic study that we are aware of was a study with 48 samples. Now contrast that to the size of the genomic studies that we're doing. By the way, Seer actually published a paper in Nature Communication just about a year ago last July. And in that paper, um, um, there was 141 subjects in that paper that uh, the depth of the protein was to about 2000 protein per, um, per subject. And the data acquisition part of that, you know, is under two weeks basically to get to that level of data. So it now becomes possible, uh, Daniel, to actually do really large samples, um, population level studies like we're doing in the genomics, you know, as we move forward. As you know that um, the proteograph product suite is now commercialized and we're in the second of third phase of our commercialization. The first phase was the collaboration phase, followed by the limited release, Uh, which is the phase that we're in now, followed by broad release, which happens um, at the the end of the year or beginning of next year. And if you look at our early customers, Oregon Health was our first customer. It was a collaboration customer. They received their instrument the end of last year. Um, We've announced uh, on our last earning call that Oregon has now completed their pilot studies and Oregon is now planning studies Uh, in the size of, you know, 500 to 1,000 sample study, which is, you know, a a log or log and a half bigger than any prior study in unbiased proteomic that they could do in deep unbiased proteomic. So the scalability uh, in terms of access to proteomic content that becomes possible using the Seer Proteograph product suite is radically significant advance in what was possible before.
0: As you think about driving commercial uh, adoption here, what do you see as the biggest challenges? Look,
1: um, we're obviously on the very, very early part of this journey. Um, I said we're at a watershed moment, the likes of which we saw in the genomic 15 years ago. Now. I wouldn't say it's going to take us 15 years in the proteomic space to get to where genomic is today because many of our colleagues in the genomic space have paved the road for us that we're traveling on. So our slope of adoption uh, is is going to be sharper than what happened with genomic. Many of these customers already exist that are doing large-scale genomic content that they're just looking for annotating those genomic information with proteomic um, uh, information. And so they will readily adopt large-scale proteomic studies. But I would say, Daniel, we're at the early part of this journey, uh, you know, and execution is never easy. Now, I am so proud of the team that we have built um, in all different functions of this organization, a team that has been just on top of the food chain, in terms of this life science and tools business, uh, including my colleague Omid Ostadan, uh, who's our president and and chief operating officer, and Omid was previously at Illumina for 15 years, and before that at Selexa, which was acquired by Illumina. Um, and um, you know, so much of the brilliance of the marketing that uh, and strategy that Illumina did in terms of penetrating the market eventually gaining 80 percent um market share in sequencing um having launched 11 sequencers in the last 15 years Uh, a lot of that was done by Omid, and i'm just thrilled to have an individual of that caliber and that level of insight uh leading our operation and leading our product development and leading our commercialization at seer you know this is um you know, launching these these products and building these companies, frankly, is a team sport, um, and I'm super super proud of the team that we've assembled. And by the way, a growing team uh, at Seer.
0: Omid Farazad, Chair and CEO of Seer Bio. Omid, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.